Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. I'm Jake Stewart, and I run corporate communications here at the firm, and I'm joined today by Amy Chosick, who's written a book, your first book, right? Yeah. Yeah, Chasing Hillary. Amy, thanks for joining thanks us. Thanks so much for having me. So good to be here. So Amy um, has been a reporter at the uh, Wall Street Journal and now at the New York Times and ended up uh, by stint of hard work and luck covering Hillary Clinton's 2008 and 2016 campaign. Yeah. Um, but why, why did you chose to write this book? The book's been described a bit as like a bit of a coming-of-age story and a campaign book all at once. Why did you decide to write this, this book, which is, tells a lot about your own life, but also about your career covering Hillary Clinton? Yeah, my favorite review said it was Boys on the Bus Meets Devil, Wear, Devil Wears Prada. So that was sort of exactly what I was trying to get at. That's a good pitch for Hollywood, too. Yeah, if you're listening. <laughs> uh, from your lips to Reese Witherspoon's ears. Yes. Um, but so I'd read, you know, being a political reporter, I'd read every campaign book, as I'm sure you have, What It Takes by Richard Ben Kramer and The Boys on the Bus and Hunter S. Thompson and all of these great campaign books. And they're all written by men who kind of prove that they can get inside the campaigns of other great men. And we had this confluence of things happening in 2016, Hillary Clinton being the first woman with a real shot at the presidency, and her press corps was predominantly female. It's always been the boys on the bus, and suddenly like 18 of 20 of us who traveled everywhere Hillary went were women. Um, and so I wanted to write sort of a very female story about how this figure, trying to become the first woman, pre woman president, had taken over my 20s and 30s. You know, every major life decision, when to get married, when to have a baby, all of these things kind of loomed around my career, which was covering this woman trying to be president. I think a lot of women, you know, make those sacrifices for their career, but mine just happened to be Hillary. Hillary. <laughs> so um, t take us a little bit about how you became a political reporter. You grew up in San Antonio, Texas, mm -hmm. worked a little bit for a high school newspaper, went to UT, uh, worked in the paper at, at in Austin, mm -hmm. um, and then you moved to New York, deciding to be a journalist uh, without a job, yep. and you found your way to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, it was not quite that direct, but... <laughs> <laughs> a couple yeah. of pit stops in exactly. between, yeah, exactly. Home and Garden, maybe, yeah. a couple other yeah. stops. Yeah, I, um, I moved, I wanted to be a journalist, I moved to New York, it's very naive looking back, no job, no apartment, I, st I had a stack of clips from the Daily Texan, where I'd worked in college, and I didn't have any contacts. I was dropping off. I was like very working girl. I was running around like in my sneakers and suit, like dropping off clips at magazines um, that I wanted to work at. And I temp to support myself. I went through some crazy jobs, including at Conde Nast, which I sort of document in one chapter of the book. These kind of fashion editors asking me for, you know, I was, I was that assistant. I remember getting in the elevator with this very young assistant, probably my age, and she had like a $10,000 Hermes bag, and her friend got in and said, oh my God, I love your bag, is that new? And she said, no, I got it like a week ago. So there were like all of these things that seemed like completely crazy to me as I just moved from Texas. I'd like, you know, and so I had this education about New York and eventually um, ended up getting a job as the foreign news assistant at the Wall Street Journal. And this was right after Danny Pearl. Which sounds kind of glamorous. Yeah. It was, it was amazing. I think it was one of the great jobs in journalism. Sadly, I don't think it exists anymore, but it was 
right after Danny Pearl had been kidnapped and killed in Pakistan, and we were in the thick of the Iraq War, and, the, and right down here, actually, the, the journal had been basically bombed out of its headquarters um, at 9-11. And so I was the foreign news assistant, but I was doing really interesting things. I was like getting bulletproof vests to reporters, and I was you know, keeping track of all, where all the foreign correspondents were. Um, at one point, I had to get an armored BMW to a correspondent in Baghdad, and the only way they could think to get her enough money to buy this vehicle was to wire it to my personal savings account. So it went from like $300 to like $40,000. And then I went Which to- Which you, you get accused of money laundering exactly. for that, right? Exactly, so then yeah. I go and like withdraw all this cash. The guy actually at the bank was like, would you like us to put that in a suitcase? You know, free. I was, <laughs> and then I go to Western Union across the street, and like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm on some kind of money laundering list. Yeah. I was like, I need to get forty thousand dollars in cash to Baghdad, but it was just like a great, <laughs> yeah. as one does. Yeah. It was a great education about journalism. My editors all encouraged me to write. You know, they were like, forget doing expenses and getting coffee and all the like assistant duties. They were like, I want to see your name on page one. Um, and I wrote a ton, and eventually I got promoted to be a foreign correspondent in Japan. And you covered business in Japan? Yeah, it was consumer culture, so it was kind of anything the Japanese are buying or doing. Or I mean, it was sort of like an anthropological beat because Japan is so much about consumer culture. Um, so I wrote some of those, and a lot of those quirky middle columns, the yeah. Wall Street Journal. The Ahead. Yep. So, yeah. so then you come back home mm -hmm. uh, and get recruited to uh, join the 2008 campaign, Hillary running against a unknown or relatively little known senator from Illinois. Uh, she seemed like the favorite. Uh, describe covering that campaign, what it was like, and what, what the come down was like eventually. Yeah, so my boss in, when I was in Japan was an editor named John Bussey, who was the foreign news editor. He had hired me to be the assistant and then promoted me to be a correspondent. And he became Washington bureau chief and said to me, well, how'd you like to go to Iowa and cover Hillary Clinton? So I'd been really immersed in covering Japan, and I didn't know, I mean, I knew a little bit about American politics. I'd heard of this Barack Obama guy, you know. Um, and so I went to Iowa, and at first it was as foreign a world to me as Japan was. You know, I didn't know, I write in the book that I didn't know what a caucus was, and I admitted to Hillary Clinton's campaign. There was some, there were some who thought that the campaign didn't. <laughs> exactly. Hillary exactly. campaign didn't know what a caucus exactly. was. Exactly, I finally confessed that, and they said, that's okay, we didn't know what a caucus was either then. <laughs> Um, and so it was real education for me, not just about um, politics, but also kind of the whole circus that goes along with it of the traveling press. I mean, I wasn't used to that kind of like pack journalism and watching the same speech four times and trying to find a story out of that. And so it was a, a real education for me. And I covered, of course, not knowing much about politics. I thought, Hillary Clinton, I'm writing this to the White House, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and covered her until she lost. And then I switched over to Obama and covered him through the general election. So then you move on to the New York Times. You cover media, um, which is a, a fascinating beat. We could spend a whole uh, conversation uh, talking about that. But you wrote a book about Can Hillary, so we'll get back to Hillary. Uh, I do. Um, we can, we'll talk a little bit about the business yeah. of media later. But so, so, but then you get brought in after a brutal, uh, you know, year and a half of covering the campaign. And Jill Abramson, then editor in chief of the Times, asked you to cover Hillary again, and you went ahead and did it. Why? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I remember, so I was the Wall Street Journal reporter covering her in 08, and I remember seeing Patrick Healy, who was the Times correspondent, 
um, on the trail, and I just like I coveted being the like time, the New York Times correspondent um, on the road. I mean, little did I know how much pressure that you know the Times correspondent was under. But I, um, the chance to cover potentially the first woman president for the paper of record, you know, I immediately said yes. You know, before I even asked her when she had this. This was the summer of 2013, and she had asked me to cover Hillary. She's, it was obvious she's going to run again, and no one's covering her. And I they didn't. They, by the way, did not. If I remember from right. your book, they did not like much that you were covering them before they were running. That's an understatement. They were very mad that she, I, I was very naive about this. I thought, oh, great, I'm going to, you know. But they were very upset that the Times had put a dedicated reporter on her that early. They wanted her to kind of drift out of, the, you know, her State Department numbers, she was like 60% approval rating, 60, 70% approval rating. And as soon as she looked political again, they worried and they were correct that her numbers would drop. And they thought a devoted reporter would have to do up stories, stories that they didn't want. Um, so they were very upset about this decision by Jill. Well, another thing they hated, uh, the campaign hated, was the treatment the Times gave Trump. Um, and they felt like he got a free pass on a lot of things. Now, uh, certainly he didn't think so. But, but how was it that he sort of managed to give, whether, whether they're right or wrong, the, the Clinton campaign the impression that the Times was soaking up everything he said? Um, well, I, I skipped one thing, which is the Times also broke the private email server story. So that happened right before right. she ran, and there was this assumption like, oh, the Times just found another scandal, you know. Um, but with Trump, look, I think there's no question that we wrote a ton of critical <laughs> investigative stories about Trump, whether it was bankruptcies, women, um, you know, you, you name it. Um, but I think that that happened a little bit late. I think not just at the Times, but across all the media. Yeah, you know, there wasn't, we didn't think that he was going to become the nominee, much less the president. And so I think the critical coverage started, not, I shouldn't say critical, but the investigative coverage started a little bit later than with other candidates. Right. Um, but I think the, her, she and her aides' argument that we were like somehow soft or easier on Trump, I think, is not the case. I mean, you could look at days and days of front page, front page stories about the Access Hollywood video, about his business dealings, about him, you know, you name it. Talk a little bit about the email story and why it took on the prominence it did. Mm -hmm. um, even before uh, WikiLeaks and the fall, yeah. why did the email server become like this cause celeb on both the right and the left? Yeah, well, I mean, it hit, it's such a, such a, perilous time for her. It was March. She was planning to start her campaign in April. Um, and the story breaks. And what I think particularly resonated about her email server stories, it fed into all of these perceptions about the Clintons and her specifically. Secretive, you know, hiding something, not telling the truth. Um, you know, it was, it was shocking during the campaign that her, the levels of mistrust among her and Donald Trump were almost equal throughout the campaign in terms of voters not trusting. As you know, people didn't trust Bill Clinton either. And this is something Hillary's aides used to say, well, people but, didn't trust Bill Clinton. But they felt like he was on their side. Right. So they trusted that he was looking out for them. And I yeah. think that was the disconnect that they could never quite get to with Hillary. Um, and so the server, there's a couple things. I think it was a legitimate news story, a huge story. I mean, think about the leading candidate for the presidency being under FBI investigation. And any other election year, that would be a dominant story. I remember. July 4th weekend watching she and her aides march into the J. Edgar Hoover, Hoover building to, you know, to talk to the FBI. I mean, it was, it was amazing. But um, 
but particularly, it did take on a life of its own, as all of these sort of scandals do. You know, it starts with something, and then the her, Hillary's critics, the vast right-wing conspiracy, as she called it in the 90s, kind of gears up and is just voracious. Yeah. Um, so, interestingly, in that election, in many ways, if you think about it, the the right now, if you look at the press landscape, the Washington Post and the New York Times are being heralded by, by many people, and rightfully so. They're doing a lot of interesting journalism. And yet they, by their own admission, got the election completely wrong. And yet the Wall Street Journal uh, tried to sort of hew a little bit more of a, a center line, and the editor took a lot of flack, frankly, for his maybe, maybe mishandled some of the communication, but his efforts to do that. But, but in retrospect, maybe they were a little bit closer to what was actually going on in the country. Um, and yet, right now, we're in a period where these these political newspapers, whose job it is to cover politics, kind of got a fundamental political fact of life wrong. And how, how do you assess the way in which the press gets held accountable for its own reporting? And a political candidate loses, they lose. Right. Um, a paper gets it wrong, and they just you know go to print the next day. And right. has there been a reassessment within these newspapers? I mean. Look, I don't think we're supposed to be fortune tellers, you know, like to get right. to, to not be able to determine an election, I think isn't getting it wrong is a little but but I do think that there were a couple things that the media did, um, which was an over, which is the same thing that the Hillary campaign did was an over reliance on erroneous data. You know, we had the Times upshot. Anyone looking at that election night had her at ninety percent, and then you watch the needle go. And I would be out. I traveled a ton with the campaign, and I'd come back from Hillary rallies and tell my editors, it just doesn't feel like a winning campaign. I mean, I'd covered Obama in 2008 when you saw a crowd of a million people, and you felt the historic heft of that. And Hillary's was just kind of a slog, and it just didn't. And I said, it just doesn't feel like a winning campaign. And they'd say, but the upshot gives her you know, 89%. It's over. you know. Cause we, and, and I agreed. I said, yeah, the data all says that it's over. And so I think that there was, or even something simple like yard signs, you know, a reporter would go out in the field and say, I don't see any Hillary yard signs. It's all Trump. And they'd be like, yard signs, crowd size, who cares? And we have this data model. And so I do think there was an ignoring of things we saw on the ground because conventional wisdom, I, I don't want to blame it all on data, but it was conventional wisdom said Donald Trump can't get elected. The data said he wasn't getting get elected. And so I think we let that drive our stories. Um, we all did um, in the media because that's where we were, you know. So, so I do think even since the election, there's a lot more effort of getting to getting talking to people, traveling around the country. Um, this was a fascinating election for a lot of reasons, but it was the first sort of Twitter and live streamed election. I mean, you really felt like why would I spend the money to go to Ohio when I could live stream the speech, when I could see on Twitter what's happening, um, when I could talk to voters on Facebook? But there is you know, real value in still going out in the country and finding out what people are thinking and feeling. Um, back up a little bit to the business. You used to cover the business of journalism. Um, for a little while, at least in the main print media, the Times was ad-supported mostly, subscriptions, but ads made a, a, a big part of their... Um, uh, of their revenue base. Uh, the journal had been traditionally a little bit more subscription-based, but now, while ads are getting wiped out by Facebook and Google and other social media, everyone seems to be moving to subscription models, mm -hmm. which seems at some level fine because uh, you know people are paying for the journalism, but it seems to have made the, the, the subscriber base want a certain kind of journalism and the papers have to be responsive to that. How do you assess like what's happening to Journalism is it becoming balkanized the way cable is, where 
Fox is catering to its audience, MSNBC is catering to its audience, and are the, are the big national newspapers losing a little bit of that kind of speaking to the whole people? Well, I hope not, and certainly that's something that the Times is careful not to do. I mean, Dean Becke has said, from, our executive editor has said from the beginning, we cannot be the opposition party. Um, that's not the role of the Times. Um, that said, I do think this assault on journalism and this fake news has motivated a lot more people to pay for the Times, whether they agree with every editorial or not. Um, I think that there is a real hankering for journalism that people can trust, that people know is you know supported, and I think our di our digital subscriptions are are the highest they've ever been, including the Washington. You know, it's worked well for for but no, digital subscriptions. There's a subscriptions. liberal, there's yeah. a contingent of vocal liberal critics who think the Times should speak more to their to their worldview. Um, I liked it. I forget it was, it was maybe a Politico article that said the New York Times opinion page is not your safe space. You know, I think that that's really dangerous. I think that there should be a variety of voices, and there should be as close to no slant on the news as possible. I mean, if anything, it's critical right now. Um, talk a little bit about why well, you didn't cover him. Your colleagues did, and, and you certainly heard lots of stories. Talk a little bit about the the president's assault on the media because it's it's combined with a sort of very intense deep understanding of how the media works i mean he understands how 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 everything from a sunday show to a morning tv show to a newsroom operates and and he also gives a lot of access to people so yeah. lots of interviews yeah. deep understanding of the media he he even impersonated himself as his own <laughs> press secretary or um, so he, he sort of knows the game, and yet he uh, consistently wages war on the media and has his own following through Twitter. Right. Um, how, how's that combination played out? Well, I absolutely think Donald Trump could not have gotten elected in a different media landscape. I mean, he completely understood Twitter. He understood that he could call into every cable show. He understood how to drive media. And I'm speaking from my experience during the campaign, but Donald Trump would call me um, and he would call my colleagues. Um, he would you know, decry the fake news media and then he would, he would call. I have an anecdote in the book, or well, he called a couple times. Once he wanted to know if I th thought uh, if I thought Arnold Schwarzenegger would be as good as him on The Apprentice. Um, he had found out that I watched. So he valued your opinion. Well, yeah. there you go. Um, yeah. but, First rule of sales. But I, yeah. I accidentally said in one of our conversations, like, thank you so much for calling me, Mr. Trump. Hillary, I've covered her for 10 years, and she's never called me out of the blue like this. And he said, well, when's the last time she talked? When's the last time she had a press conference? And I said, I, don't, I guess it's been, it's been about six months. you know. And the next day on the campaign trail, he's like, it's been 250 days since Hillary Clinton had a press <laughs> conference. So she doesn't have the stamina to talk to the media. Um, so. But yes, I mean, absolutely. It was, it, was, it was a fascinating dynamic between Hillary, who, whose media strategy essentially amounted to ignoring us. You know, she did the Ellen DeGeneres show, very, very safe media, and, and basically ignored the mainstream press, to Trump, who would, um, and, and don't get me wrong, say very dangerous things about journalism on the stump, and then be very accessible. Um, and try to kind of go go on every show and call in. And and a lot of the cable news shows that had Trump call in, they asked Hillary. She always said, her campaign always said no. Yeah. Um, I mean, even today, even while he's assaulting, you know, journalists sometimes by name, he he knows their names, yeah. you know, which is interesting. And their cell phone numbers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, uh, 
from following Hillary over the years, what, do you, what did you actually learn about her as a person? I mean, you, you actually saw a lot of her. You didn't yeah. necessarily interact um, uh, intimately right. that often. I mean, they kept you at arm's length or, or more. Mm -hmm. um, but what, what did you learn from her about, I don't know, what it takes to succeed as a, as a woman politician or, or woman in, in this society? Yeah, no, when people ask about my relationship with Hillary, I say I have a relationship with her in my head. Um, but I did, I mean, there, certainly her career was informative and actually we're already seeing some female candidates kind of take the lessons of Hillary and that, you know, um, I think she understandably had to be perfect all the time and felt this need to be perfect all the time. Uh, and, 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 in, and in return, people thought she wasn't authentic. You know, it was like you, could, you sort of couldn't win. Um, I think partly because we had no template for what a woman at that level looks like, you know, she's supposed to be your favorite drinking buddy, but she, but then there was also concerns that, well, people aren't gonna see a woman as a tough commander in chief, so you have to be tough, but you also have to be warm. There was just like, even if she had provided all of those things, there would have been still some fundamental quality that she was lacking just because we'd never seen a woman at that, operate at that level before. Um, and so I certainly learned things from her as I think a, a lot of women, a lot of women did, um, especially I think in, um, 2016, you know, was a very noxious campaign, but I wrote a lot of biographical stories about her life before she was even first lady, when she worked for the Children's Defense Fund, when she was an activist going undercover to investigate school segregation in Alabama, um, when she was a working mom in Arkansas, um, trying to support the family after Bill Clinton lost uh, re-election. He became the youngest former governor. Um, and, and so I learned a lot about her through all of these chapters of her life. Amy, thank you so much thanks. for joining us. And thanks, um, thanks for coming. This podcast was recorded on July 16th, 2018. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.